The New Testament reading is Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 20. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for, the, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hope it's, it's good to be with you this morning. And, and this is a special morning because this is actually our 61st and, and final sermon on the, on the book of, of Matthew. We've, we've been moving through it for quite a while now. Um, next week, we'll be beginning a new series on the, on the life of Joseph. But, but I do hope that all of the sermons, I hope that, that all of, of the preachers who have brought us the word, I, I pray that, that this um, has been a process that God has used to grow us in maturity and grow us in faith. And, and today we come to a very special passage this, in many ways, is the culmination of the book of Matthew. We come here to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We come here to the, the, the great promise that all of those in Christ are ultimately offered. So before we, we come to this text, let us come to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope and the promise that it gives us. I pray, Father, that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions to this passage, Lord, and that you would apply it to all of us, that we might grow into the image of your Son, Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask these things, and we do so in the power and the efficacy of your Holy Spirit. 
Amen. There, there's a scene in, in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of, of Narnia. It's in the book The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it's, it's when the Pevensey children, the four children, when they first hear the name of, of Aslan, when they first hear the name of that great Christ figure that fills all of the stories. And we read this. At the name of Aslan, each of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and you realize that it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. The name of Aslan, we, we see, it, it evokes very different responses in each of the children. And today's text, it, it puts us in very much the same situation. When you hear of Christ's resurrection, what is it that you feel jump inside of you? Do you suddenly feel adventurous, knowing that if this is true, that all that now threatens you in this world is ultimately a shadow that will one day pass away? Do you suddenly feel as if some delicious smell or some delightful music has just passed by you, promising you the most delicious feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb, and the most wonderful of sounds, the trumpet of Christ's return? Do you suddenly have the feeling of waking up just as you did when you were a kid? And, and I'm sure that you could remember this. And if you're a kid right now, I'm sure that you can relate to this. When you wake up on the first day of summer, or when you wake up on the first day of Christmas break, and you know that the very best days lay open before you. Or do you, like Edmund, do, do, do you feel a sensation of mysterious horror do, do you feel some kind of aversion when you hear the news of the resurrection? Do you wonder why anyone would be so foolish as to put any stock into this ridiculous and dangerous notion? Similar to the children, upon hearing the name of Aslan, we see in this text very different responses to the news of Christ's resurrection. In the soldiers, as we'll see, we see the response of the apathetic in the chief priests, we see the response of the angry. And in the women at the tomb, we see the response of the awestruck. And so in, in proper sermon form, let's, let's look at this under three alliterative titles. The apathetic, the angry, and the awestruck. Let's start first with the apathetic. When Christ had risen... Matthew tells us that the chief priest actually gathered the soldiers together who were in charge of guarding the tomb, and he offered, they offered him, sorry, they offered them a bribe. They instruct the soldiers, tell people, tell people that his disciples came by night and they stole him away while you were asleep. And they also promised to give the soldiers protection, and, and they'll need it because this story assumes that the soldiers were sleeping on their job. And the soldiers... They accept this offer. They take the money. They trade the truth and they trade their own reputation for the sake of money. And why is it that they would do this? Well, it's because ultimately they're apathetic about it. They just don't care enough here to take a stand. 
In fact, they think it would be foolish to do so. Who cares what's true? Who cares about the reputation? We have the option of money right here and right now. And honestly, if we hold to the truth, we'll just be back to guarding some other contested place on the fringes of the Roman Empire. Who wants that? But think about it. If we take the money, who knows how much our life could change for the better? Who knows the things we could buy? Who knows the prestige we could acquire? Who knows the positions we could afford? Who knows the privileges we could purchase? So either we hold to the truth and and suffer, and and of course these chief priests are going to make our suffering even worse, or we take the money, which will definitely benefit us here and now. It'd be completely foolish and totally naive not to take the money. Yes, you know, we, we, we hear about those virtues of, of honor and, and sacrifice. We find those in the stories, but, but this, this is the real world. And you have to take whatever you can get whenever you can get it. And so where does this apathy ultimately come from? It's a deep form of cynicism. And we often equate cynicism with a kind of of bravery, with a kind of unflinching truth-telling. But here's the thing. Cynicism is absolutely the easiest thing in the world. A recent article on the website Upworthy, it, it puts it well. It reads, Cynicism seduces us because it's easy. It doesn't actually feel good, but it feels comfortable because it doesn't actually ask anything of us. Hardened cynics sometimes see themselves as the intellectually honest among us, having real insight into people and problems, but it's simply not true. Cynicism requires no deep digging, real reflection, or soul-searching. It's the easiest thing in the world to call the world a dumpster fire, toss up our hands, and say, well, everything and everyone sucks, so what's the problem? What's the point? Um, We might think here that the words of the cynic are hard words. And it's true, they're definitely heavy words. There's not a whole lot of light there. Yes, they burden us. But if you think about it, these are very, very easy words. Again, cynicism doesn't feel good. What it does is it feels comfortable. It actually removes any responsibility we might have to any circumstance or situation, and it pushes us to get whatever we can get in any way that we can get it. And this is where the soldiers are. Again, here we are. We've been placed in some fringe of the Roman Republic, the Roman Empire. We're subject to rulers and authorities who only and ever seek their best interest, We're expendable and we're easily replaced. And you know what? We're only going to make it harder on ourselves if we don't take this money. Life is a dumpster fire, and and, and so I might as well get a little bit of warmth from it. However, in contrast to this cynicism, words of hope are good, good words. But they are not easy words. Words of hope if you think about it, are actually hard words because they call us to action. Words of hope place responsibility upon us. Consider an example. Zena Hitz, in her book Lost in Thought, she she tells the story of the Russian dissident Irina Rutushinskaya. 
And she made poetry as a means of resistance in her 1980s Soviet prison cell. On things like bars of soap, on things like cigarette paper, she scratched poetry and she shared this poetry with her fellow prisoners. And these were words that pushed against any love of the cage, that pushed against any cynical acceptance of the way things were. As Hitz writes, Radishinsinka Singsaya, I know I'm, I'm butchering that name, Hitz says the following. <clears throat> her discomforting enthusiasm shines through in her writing about her prison experiences. Enthusiasm for defiance of her captors, for forming a community with other prisoners, for preserving her dignity and that of her companions against deprivation and insult. And I'm sure these words were hard to hear because the more that you believed these words, the more you refused to come to terms with being a prisoner. The more that you believed these words, the less comfortable you were with your cynicism the less comfortable you were with your circumstances. The more you believed these words, the more you were confronted with the possibility that things really could be different. And so yes, a word of hope is a good word, but it's a word that calls us to action. And so deep down, the soldiers don't want the resurrection to be true because if they did, then everything would be different. If it was true, if the resurrection is true, then the world is not one big dumpster fire. If the resurrection is true, then there is something bigger than self-interest to which I am accountable to. If the resurrection is true, then I actually have responsibilities to the truth and to my duties. If the resurrection is true, I actually have to change. If the resurrection is true, I can't pursue my own comfortable life of cynicism. And so, please ask yourself, Do you resist the message of Christ because what the hope of this message would demand of you? Think about Edmund. Why does Edmund feel a sensation of horror when he hears the name of Aslan? Because who Aslan is, because of that truth, that would mean that Edmund must repent to Aslan. If you know the story, he must confess that he has been a traitor who has given his service to the White Witch. He has to do the hard work of reconciling with his siblings. And he must be brave and courageous in the face of the witch. And because of the great hope that is true, because of Aslan, Edmund actually does all of these things. The identity of Aslan is the greatest of news for any Narnian. But for Edmund and for all of us, this is not easy news. All these things that Aslan requires are hard and humbling. And who wants to do that? And so it's just easier to shut our ears and just take the money like the soldiers do. And so ask yourself, is your aversion to Christ... Might it be a fear of the responsibilities that any true and great word of hope will necessarily place upon you? Responsibility follows from hope just like heat flows from fire. You cannot have fire without heat, and you cannot have hope without responsibility. And ask yourself, too, about this very dynamic in this church. Are you letting cynicism keep you from the full hope to which Christ calls the church. 
There is no perfect church. Every church, by its very definition, is the fellowship of sinners with other sinners. Messes who fellowship with other messes. That's who we are. And that's the whole reason why we need Christ. He's the shepherd. We're the sheep. And so there are a million reasons to be cynical about any church. And friends, there are a million reasons to be cynical about one ancient hope. And I can honestly and sincerely say that you have been such a gracious and patient church to me and to my family as we've moved into this position. So thank you so much. But here's the question that we always have to be asking ourselves again and again. Are we letting cynicism take root? Is there something about this church that pushes you not to get involved, to keep your distance, to hold the church at arm's length? Maybe you're thinking, I don't like this or that position of the church. I don't like the denomination of the church. I don't like this part of the service. I don't like the preaching style. I don't like the music. I don't like the community partnerships that the church has formed. I don't like this or that ministry of the church. I don't like this. I don't like that. And for that reason, I'm just not going to get involved. And this is an important issue. I invite you, if that's the case, please come, let's talk. These are important conversations to to have. But friends, please don't get cynical. Again, cynicism is the easiest thing in the world. This is why it feels comfortable, because it removes any responsibility from us. And again, there is no perfect church. You will always, always, always find something to critique here. But as Christians, Christ calls us to be deeply involved in Christian community, either at this church or or at another church. There's so many great churches here in Iowa City, and we should be grateful for that. If you are a Christian, the arm's length approach of cynicism simply is not an option that Christ gives to us. Or ask about any other aspect of the Christian life that makes you uncomfortable. Any other aspect of the Christian life that may give you the aversion that Edmund experiences. For instance, do you tend to roll your eyes about Christ's teaching on money, the deep generosity that he calls us to? Do you roll your eyes about Christ's teaching on sexuality, an ethic that cuts against our cultural ideals? Do you roll your eyes about Christ's call to love our neighbor as our very selves? A a self-sacrificial service that means that our life is not our own. If so, this could be a sign that you are trying to avoid the actual responsibilities that the hope of the gospel places upon you. And friends, joy can only be found in these words of hope, in the good life of responsibility that they call us to. And this brings us to our second point, the angry. The second group we encounter is the chief priests. And unlike the cynical soldiers, they are not apathetic about the news of the resurrection. They're angry about it. They're furious. And why? Because if Christ has truly risen from the dead, it means that they are wrong. It means that the shape and direction of their life is wrong. They are not like the soldiers. The chief priests actually enjoy the status quo. They are benefiting from the way that things are now structured. And they, unlike the soldiers, they have more than enough resources. 
Again, they're more than able to bribe the soldiers with the money that they need. They have positions of power and privilege and prestige. And here's the difference. The soldiers, they believe that the world cannot change. And that makes them apathetic. But the chief priests, they don't want the world to change. And that makes them angry. If Christ is risen, this means that everything that Christ has said is true. And among other things, that means that Christ is not only human, but also a God. And this means that the one whom they have most hated, Jesus, is also the one whom they are called to love most, God. And they don't want this to be true. And this truth makes them angry, and so they suppress it. If you remember, in in Jesus' trial, they seek false witnesses. And now they use their resources to make false witnesses. And this whole situation, it exposes their true God. And it is not the God of the Old Testament. If it were, they would be falling right now at the feet of Jesus. No, their true God is power and influence and prestige and position. And they will cling to it at all costs, even if they have to murder and lie. And think about it. They're the ones who are called to teach the Ten Commandments, and now they find themselves in complete violation of the Ten Commandments. But it's not the content of the teaching that they love. No, they love the status and the privilege and the position that the teaching gives them. They don't love what they teach. They love that they are teachers, They love the content, they would be repenting right now in joy. But right now they're lying, and they're doing so because of their fury. And so rather than using their teaching to exalt Christ and humble themselves, which is what the teaching of Scripture is calling us to do, instead, they are using their teaching to humble Christ and exalt themselves. And we have to ask ourselves, are there ways in which we ourselves are doing this? For instance, do you use your own work as a way to exalt yourselves? I've heard it said that if you are a Christian with children at home, then you probably should not be at the top of your field. And I actually think this is wise counsel. If you are at the very top of your field, then in some way, shape, or form, you are probably not giving your family what they need. But if Christ is God, then being at the top of your field is not your primary goal. If it is, we may be trying to exalt ourselves by way of our work. And again, this is what the chief priests did. And we, like them, if we do that for that reason, will do so at the expense of others, especially Our family. And please don't hear me say we shouldn't do good work. Good, important, valuable work is part of our flourishing. But ask yourself are you content with the career of good and faithful stewardship, one that is deeply respected by your colleagues and deeply respected by those around you, but one that is forgotten after you retire? If not, like the chief priests, your job in your heart may actually be 
a means of worshiping yourself and not Christ. And besides, no matter how great your professional success is, your career will be forgotten much sooner than you think. And this is also true for those who find themselves constantly restless in their work. If you always find yourself looking at other vocations and not settling into your own, then your current frustration with your work, it might be because you are asking your job to do what only God can do. Your job cannot be the basis of your identity. It cannot fulfill the deepest desires of your heart. Again, it is part of our flourishing as human beings. But only God can do these things. Or let's consider another aspect of of anger. The way that the news of the resurrection shakes up the religious status quo, the religious status quo of the chief priests. Because think about the things that Christ has said during his life and ministry. He tells us, quite strikingly, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a claim that understandably evokes anger, both in the chief priests, in our cultural moment, and I imagine in most cultural moments. But this claim also points us to the importance of the historicity of the resurrection. It's very important here, if this is true, that the news of the resurrection is true. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But why would that be? Why would Christianity writ large be completely vain and hopeless if Christ had not actually risen from the dead, if this news is not true. Well, here we come to something that makes Christianity wholly different from every other faith. And um, I'm going to borrow here from the way that, that Pastor Tim Keller frames this issue. And Keller argues that every other religion in some way, shape, or form is primarily about what you should do. It gives us commands and it gives us advice. It tells us how we ourselves are meant to walk the path to God. And the lives of its founders and prophets, they're not essential to the religious faith itself. And that's because these prophets, these religious prophets, have come to point to show the way to God. They tell us here is the way to walk, to go to salvation. And so we might disagree about the historical events of their life, but in the end, it wouldn't really change their message in any essential way. And that's because their message is about what you should do and not about what has already been done. And this approach is always going to be much friendlier with the notion that all roads lead to God. Because if it's us who is coming to God, then it's reasonable that any sufficiently good life, however we might define it, will get us there. But this is not the case with Christ. Christ's message is primarily about who he is and what he has done. And the historical events of his birth, of his life and ministry, about his death on the cross, and here about his resurrection, and soon to be his ascension, These are actually the very things that save us. 
The whole point here is that God the Son became human and lived in history the perfect life of love that God has called us to. And then upon the cross, Christ takes the punishment that we deserve for falling short of God's perfect ethic of justice. And then in the resurrection, the news we are hearing today, Christ was raised never to die again, revealing to us the certain hope that he offers to those who have faith in him. But if these things did not happen, if this is not real news, then the whole logic of Christian salvation is destroyed. And that's because Christ does not come primarily to tell us the way to live to come to God. If he did, then Christ would not be the only way to the Father. No, Christ came to fulfill every requirement of God on our behalf in our history. Therefore, if Christ is not actually raised in history or if any other part of this narrative is false, then Christ has not truly lived and died and been raised in our place. And if that's the case, the Christian faith is vain and hopeless. Its whole logic is undercut and destroyed. If Christ did not do this in history, he cannot offer us salvation. He has no words of hope for us. As Keller explains, Christ did not come to point the way to God, but to be the very way to God. The gospel, as we said in the children's sermon, is not advice. It's not what we should do. The gospel is specifically the good news of what Christ has done already for us. And that's wholly different from any other faith, and it shakes up the religious status quo. Perhaps it makes us angry. But again, we cannot forget that Christ's message is one of great, great hope. And this brings us to our third and final point. The awestruck. In contrast to the apathy of the cynical soldiers, in contrast to the anger of the pernicious priests, we read that the women at the tomb receive the news of the resurrection with awe. And why do I use the word awe here? It's because awe is a mixture of many things. And specifically, we are told that after hearing the report of the resurrection, The women are filled filled with fear and great joy. And only if we receive the news of the resurrection with both fear and a great joy can we receive it in the proper way that the women themselves did. Why fear? Well, if the resurrection is true, then death is not the end. Death is only the beginning. And either you will press forever ever more deeply into the love of Christ in a restored creation free from death and corruption, or you will find yourself ever farther and farther from Christ's embrace. But this hope does not evoke the kind of fear that we might associate with some horrible creature or horrible monster. No, this is like the fear that we experience on the edge of the Grand Canyon. It's a fear that's produced by the wonderful reality that lays before you. This is the fear that the women are coming to terms with. They are coming to terms with how great and good God really is. This is the God who raises the dead. He is the God who makes even the grandest canyon look like only a small divot in the earth by comparison. And such glory cannot help but foster the fear of great wonder. And certainly, if the resurrection is a fact, we are confronted with wonder. 
But there's another part of this passage that also puts us face to face with wonder, if we think about it deeply. And it's the very ending of the book of Matthew. It's Christ's great commission to the 11 remaining disciples after his resurrection. Christ tells them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Why should should this fill us with wonder? Well, because the 11 disciples did just this. They did, and the church is, making disciples of all nations. But is this, like the claim of the resurrection, is this really a claim of wonder? St. Augustine is helpful here. He reminds us that the resurrection is not the only miraculous event that we need to account for here. There are two other miraculous historical facts that we must account for, And both of these are historically indisputable. First, how is it that a few obscure men with no special training or means went on to persuade the whole world of such a miraculous thing as the resurrection? And they did so at great danger to themselves, and many of them were killed in the process. And what is it that happened to them that turned them from the cowards cowering at the cross to the the apostles who proclaimed this message fearlessly. How did this change happen so quickly? Why would they do this? How did they do this? And how did they actually carry out the Great Commission? This historical reality, Augustine reminds us, is nothing short of miraculous. Secondly, Augustine points out that the Christian faith has spread out all over the world into all cultures and people. And he asks, why would such a large and diverse group of people, why would they be persuaded to believe something so miraculous? Their cultures, just like us, were certain that dead bodies do not come back to life. And very often, just like the disciples, these converts face grave danger and fierce persecution for their faith. Socially speaking, converting was the worst thing they could possibly do. And all of us sitting in this room 10,000 years later are a testament to this miraculous fact. And so how did this happen? Augustine argues that the best way to make sense of these two miraculous events is to affirm another miraculous event, the resurrection of Christ. Because if we deny the resurrection as a historical reality, we still have to reckon with these other two mysteries. miraculous facts. We have to offer a reason for them. And if you are a Christian, please let all three of these facts fill you with wonder. But amidst this, we also have to remember one more kind of fear. And here it is the fear expressed by Peter when he first meets Jesus, realizing that Jesus is no mere man. Peter exclaims, "'Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord.'" It is the fear of facing a holy God as a sinful people. And here it finally hits the women. They realize that in fellowshipping with Jesus, they have been face to face with the holy God himself. And it is a fear that must push all of us 
to repentance, repenting for our apathy and our cynicism. And friends, repenting is hard. It is the most humbling of all acts. But again, as the women show us, there is also great, great joy here. Yes, it is a hard truth that the cross is what we deserve. But the cross also shows us the deep, deep love of God for us. Christ loved us so deeply. Sorry, Christ loved us so deeply that he lived the perfect human life in our place. And on the cross, he dies the death that we, not he, deserves. And so, yes, in one way, the message of Christ gives us hard, hard words, but it also gives us the very sweetest words of rest and relief and assurance. It is the message that Christ has accomplished it all for us. There is nothing that we can add to Christ's salvation. Again, Christ has not come to point the way. No, Christ is the way. And there is a wonderful promise here too. It is the promise that Christ's resurrection life, that's our certain future if we place our faith in him. There's a scene in, in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings where a, where a great battle is going badly. And the people of, of Gondor, they're, they're falling to the evil forces of Sauron. Orcs be down on the city. But just then, at that point, when all seems lost, there is a great horn blow that blasts. The riders of Rohan have answered Gondor's call of distress. And mounted on horses, they charge through the battlefield. And at that moment, the tide of the battle changes. Everything changes. And upon hearing this horn, Tolkien writes the following about Pippin. And he's one of the hobbits who is defending Gondor. Pippin rose to his feet as if a great weight had been lifted from him. And he stood listening to the horns. And it seemed to him that they would break his heart with joy. And never in after years could he hear a horn blown in the distance without tears starting in his eyes. It would have been the easiest thing in the world for Pippin to just lay down and die. But a horn is a message of hope. It calls Pippin to rise again and to carry on the good fight. And yes, fighting on is the harder path for Pippin and for us. But what else can hope call us to do? Hope is a hard word, but there is no better word. There's no other sound that Pippin would rather hear. There's no other sound that we should rather hear. And this is what the news of the resurrection is. It is a great horn blast to a weary world in which death and cynicism and apathy seem to have the upper hand. And yes, it would be the easiest thing in the world to give in to all of these things. But because of the resurrection, the tide of the battle has shifted. Because of the blast of the resurrection, Christ calls us to carry out and carry on in his absolutely certain victory. He calls us to the hard and supremely hopeful work to make disciples, even to make disciples of all nations. The battle has shifted and the victory is certain. And so Christ calls us to share this message with others who do not yet know what Christ has done. He calls us to share this message of life with those who are dying, with those who are beaten down by a battle that they are certain ends in death. This is the message that Christ has already won the war that we thought was lost. And so where in your life do you think the battle is lost? Is your body breaking down? Is every day physically harder than the day before? Yes, this battle will continue in this life, but the war is won. One day in the resurrection, 
even your healthiest day here will feel like a physical sickness by comparison? Is your heart breaking because of the loss of loved ones? This battle will continue in this life. But one day we will embrace one another with a closeness that will make even the closest relationships in this life look like a stalemate between enemies. And on that day, we will never have to say goodbye again. Is a battle with some particular sin hampering all of your efforts to grow and to mature into the image of Christ? Friend, keep fighting that battle with the help of the Holy Spirit. And know that one day you will embrace God, free from all of the baggage that now weighs you down. With a joy that is not now possible, you will embrace and be embraced by God the Father. You will win this fight against sin. You will win. And so, because of the news of the resurrection, let us be like Peter, who felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Let us be like Susan, who felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And let us be like dear Lucy, who got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and you realize that it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of the summer. Everything has changed. And in Christ, the best is yet to come. The holiday has begun. The summer has dawned. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the great and grand news of the resurrection. Let us receive it with joy. Let us trust in you, knowing that Christ has done it all. And let us carry on with gratitude and certainty and assurance of our salvation. Lord, looking forward to the promise, promise of the resurrection. Amen.